What, a, what an appropriate song for a day where love is celebrated. I can't think of a greater showing of love than to lay down your life for those who are so unlovable. As we talked about Sunday morning in the service, we were the enemies of God, and He loved us anyway. Nothing lovable about us. He loves us anyway. And you look at that blood and sorrow mingled together. The song says, Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? And um, the song ends that uh, demands our life, our soul, our all. Um, Saturday morning in the bus meeting, I, I got up behind Pastor Dave's devotional and I shared this truth. I said, um, we don't serve Jesus to earn His love. We serve Jesus because, because He loves us. And uh, if you never pass out a gospel invitation, never share the truth with anyone, you live a horrible Christian life, God loves you just as much as He does a dedicated Christian. He doesn't love you because of how you behave. He loves you because it's His character to love you. But how selfish are you to be loved by God and then never to do anything for Him? We, we serve Him because He loves us. Luke chapter 19, let's stand for the reading of God's Word this evening. We're going to be looking at one verse initially, and then we'll be all over the, the book to finish up the study here. But uh, verse, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, if you're looking for the principal verse, the theme verse of the book, I would say it's, it's got to be Luke 19.10. Let's read it out loud. Can we do that? Let's read it out loud together. Here we go. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. We're going to go back and look at the book of Luke. We're looking at Jesus as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Let's pray. God, ask tonight you give us clarity of mind and heart. And as we consider what your kingdom is and what our involvement is to be, may we look very hard in the mirror of your word, see, Lord, where we we don't exactly have it right, and then begin to work hard to make changes accordingly. And God, again, I I pray regularly during this uh, time, but I don't want to leave here the same as I did when I came in. And I I sure hope the people here don't want this to be a routine service. May we leave here, God, with something that we're determined to make better in our lives so we can be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right, really quick, we're going to cover the first four points of the outline here. Uh, These would have been on the uh, back of the prayer bulletin uh, two weeks ago when we had service. And so if you have that one, you can pull that out and review with us. If you don't have that, then uh, you're not going to have a place to put, write these in. But let's, let's go over them really quick. Uh, point number one, we looked at the miraculous births. We talked about the um, peculiar messenger, uh, that would be John the Baptist, uh, how he was born to Elizabeth in her old age, uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth in, in their old age. And then we looked at the promised Messiah. And uh, the angel Gabriel came to both um, uh, uh, Zechariah and then came to Mary and told, said, hey, you know, you, you, you're both going to have an unusual birth. And so uh, both were born and we looked at the uh, miraculous birth. Number two, we looked at the Messiah's endorsement. Uh, we said that he was endorsed by the people's prophet, 
John the Baptist had been accepted to be the people's prophet. And here came Jesus and he said, I baptize you with water. There comes one after me that will baptize you with fire and the Holy Ghost. And uh, then he said, I'm not worthy to even buckle your shoe, to tie your shoe. And he ended up baptizing Jesus, endorsing Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. We call him Jesus Christ, but please understand that that name Christ was not given to him at birth. That name Christ is a title, meaning the promised one. It is the Greek word. um, uh, It is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So you have Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, and he got his endorsement by uh, John the Baptist. Let's see. Brother J.R., can you get me a bottle of water out of the bookstore? I'm struggling here. That'd be great. Okay, and then we also looked at the Trinity's presence. Um, uh, we said when he was baptized there in chapter 2, verse 21, that um, uh, the Trinity was present. You had Jesus, Jesus, God's Son, in the water being baptized. You had a dove there representing the Holy Spirit. And then God the Father actually audibly spoke and said, This is my Son, uh, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Uh, so we looked at the Messiah's endorsement. Number three, we looked at the book's main emphasis. The book's main emphasis. And uh, chapter 2, verse 23, down through chapter 2, verse 38, you have a long genealogy. And uh, we talked about how that genealogies, oftentimes they bore us. We don't care for them. Thank you very much. Uh, to read, but they have importance in them. This one specifically has incredible importance to it. We said from Jesus back to uh, uh, King David was 14 generations, then from David back to Abraham, 14 generations, and then from Abraham back to Adam was 14 generations. Uh, Jesus is OCD when it comes to having things set in order and symmetry. You find that all throughout the Bible. The Bible is a very symmetrical book. Um, um, it, it is so symmetrical that it is unbelievable how well it is put together, uh, how symmetrical it is. And another proof that there was one author that wrote it all. But what does that tell us about Jesus being Adam's son? Well, we learned in, excuse me, we learned, uh, excuse me, we learned in this that Jesus is a king because he is David's son. Okay, we learn that Jesus is the king of Israel because he's Abraham's son. But then we learn that Jesus is not just the king of Israel being Abraham's son, but he's the king of all humanity because he's Adam's son. And so Jesus did not just come for the Israelites. He came to be the Messiah of everybody. Beyond that, we learn that Jesus is God because he is God's son. Uh, We know that Adam is the son of God. And so he is God's son. But we also know that he is man's son because he is of Adam. We talked about how that Jesus is one. Jesus is was uh, 100 percent God, but he's also 100 percent Man, uh, this is why in the book of Luke and in other places in the gospel, he says to the Pharisees, he quotes the, the verse out of uh, a psalm where uh, uh, the Bible talks about how that uh, the Lord was uh, uh, of the Lord. So you have two Lords, the capital L, capital O-R-D, then the capital L, lowercase O-R-D. And so uh, you have the, the creator creating David and then becoming his son, being birthed. Through that lineage. And I know that sounds confusing, but the proof of this is that God was a man. God was a man. He probably experienced being sick. He definitely experienced fatigue. We know that. He slept in the boat uh, while the storm raged. He was tired and he experienced 
hunger. And we talked about how that God was a man. You remember how that he uh, he thirsted at the well. He thirsted at the well. But not only did he thirst at the well, he turned around and he saved the woman who was at the well. He forgave her her sins. He was man to thirst, but he was God to save. Uh, we talked about how that uh, he wept. He wept when Lazarus passed away. Because he was a man. And he, he hurt. Because that was his friend that had died. And those were his friends that were mourning. But he not only wept when Lazarus died, but he raised Lazarus from the dead. So he was man to cry. He was God to raise from the dead. He's the son of man. He's the son of man. Now you find that phrase all throughout uh, the Old Testament, especially in Daniel. We looked at that two weeks ago. We also see that he, uh, uh, the, the, the phrase son of man is found in Ezekiel a lot. But Jesus would come along and call himself the son of man, fulfilling that of Daniel and Ezekiel. And after Jesus would use that title, nobody else would use it. Nobody else would use it. You say, well, what does that phrase Son of man mean. It just simply means that he was the son of a man. There's nothing complicated about that, but Jesus would use that so many times. In fact, he would use that title to self-describe more than any other title to the le- to the place where nobody behind him in Scripture would come by, by, by and he would use that. So we talked about the book's main emphasis, and uh, it was written by a man who was a physician and cared a lot about human anatomy and the care of the body. And uh, uh, in that book, he would label Jesus as being that of a person, the Son of Man. Number four, we looked at the Son of Man's mission. Turn over to chapter four with me, if you would. This is where we left off last week, or two weeks ago, rather. Luke chapter 4, look at verse number 18. Jesus here is quoting from Isaiah 61. He's in his own home city of Nazareth. He walks in the synagogue. He picks up a scroll. And uh, everyone knows him as being Joseph's son, Mary's son. But now he's he's began his earthly ministry. When One of his first acts in his earthly ministry, he walks in the synagogue. He picks up the, the scroll of Isaiah, or Isaiah. He turns to the, uh, what would be chapter 61 for us, and he begins reading. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to... Heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty uh, uh, them that are bruised, to uh, preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Verse 20, he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the, the eyes of them that were in the synagogue were fasted on him. They couldn't believe that he had just stood up and done that. So what was he proclaiming here? What was Jesus proclaiming at the very outset of his ministry? He was laying the groundwork for uh, exactly who he, was, who he was. In a sense, he was reading his mission statement for his ministry. Um, what did he say? Well, letter A, we said that he was going to be, to his mission, his mission was to be a preacher. Letter B, we said his mission was to pardon. And letter C, we said his mission was uh, uh, to, um, uh, do you have letter C on your outline there? I'll put the wrong word down here. Pardon was C. Letter B was to be a physician. Okay. To be a preacher, to be a physician, and to pardon. And um, uh, what we, uh, so that's where we left off. And I want to pick up there, and I want to give you some examples of, of uh, Jesus performing that. One thing I love about Jesus is that he would stand up and say something like this, and he'd turn around and prove it right away. You got your Bibles? Got your Bibles? Turn to Luke chapter number 7 with me. Chapter 7. And that word poor, we defined that word as poor 
and, and when we did this Bible study prior, not necessarily meaning financially poor. You can be poor and have money. How many of you here have ever done any work or, or been in one of those multi-million dollar homes in New Canaan or Greenwich out that way? Anybody here? You know what I mean? You can, be, you can have money and be poor. Some of the most miserable people you'll ever meet. They've got four cars and they've got, they've got every gadget and gadget you could want. They've got, listen, they're, they're, some of them, their uh, property tax is more than 100000 a year. Maybe that's why they're miserable. I don't know. But um, money doesn't make you rich in, in the important things in life. Listen, I would rather have no money and be rich in relationships than have all the money and not have any friends. Now, I wouldn't mind having both. <laughs> um, but give me the relationships over the, uh, the riches or the, the, the money, right? Jesus was saying here, when he said that he, w- he came to be a, a, a preacher to the poor, he was coming to the outcast of society. And we describe that as being, yes, those with no money, but also those poor in health, those who were the social outcasts. Who were the social outcasts of Jesus' day? Well, women were social outcasts in Jesus' day. In, in, in fact, where sin has reigned, women have been treated poorly. Where sin has not reigned, women have been treated with great honor. And, sir, if you're walking on your wife at home, or your daughters, there's sin in your heart. Because where there is no sin, you, you honor uh, uh, women. We also talked about how that uh, uh, Matthew is an example of someone. Let's look at some examples here. Luke chapter 7. Look at verse number 38, or 36 with me. Luke 7, verse 36. I'm talking, and I didn't turn over there. Uh, it says... One of the Pharisees desired of him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, began to wash his feet with tears. She's sobbing and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them. Uh, with the ointment. Look down at verse 47. Verse 47. The Bible says, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he saith unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgive the sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. So this is a sinful woman. Many uh, 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 biblical theologians have, have uh, thought that probably this woman was a prostitute prior to being saved. Some have uh, I've guessed this to be Mary Magdalene. Uh, I don't know that for certain. The Bible doesn't give us the name here. But nonetheless, um, a woman who lived in great sin, uh, Jesus saved. Jesus Cleansed, all right? Uh, other examples found from chapter 4 through chapter 8, by the way, in this section of the book, uh, you have Jesus doing his work in the province of Galilee, all right? You say, well, help me understand Galilee. That would be like me saying Jesus doing his work in the state of Connecticut, or Galilee was the state 
per se, of where Nazareth was and also many other cities. And so chapters 4 through 8, you find Jesus doing his work specifically in Galilee. kind of has the same structure as the book of Mark there. But um, uh, what, uh, what other types of poor folks do we find Jesus healing? Jesus helping. Jesus preaching to. Jesus being a physician. Jesus being, or Jesus pardoning. Here's some other examples in 4 through 8. He, he, he cleansed lepers. Okay, handicapped man uh, was given strength. The dead was raised. I can't think of anyone more poor than a dead person. Can you? Especially if they were lost when they died. Then they're just totally broke. They're broke physically. They're broke mentally, emotionally. They're broke eternally. And so Jesus raised a dead person uh, in this passage. Uh, So we see the dead raised. We see a, a social outcast named Levi. Now, Levi had money. Levi had lots of money. He was a publican. And if you don't know what kind of money publicans had, go study the life of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was taking way more money from people as a tax collector than he was supposed to. He was the IRS, and uh, you could say that the IRS Department of Jesus' Day had been weaponized against the people. Uh, he was just taking money from everybody, and, uh, and, and there was no check there for him. And uh, uh, Matthew, uh, Levi, he was a broken man while he had money, he had misery, he had no love, he had no friends. Uh, 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 he was guarding that money and Jesus came to this man who was poor socially and said, follow me. And so you see a sinful woman forgiven, a leper cleansed, a handicapped man given strength, a dead person raised back to life, a social outcast named Levi uh, or Matthew called, and you see a prostitute forgiven. So in short order, Luke is showing us that that Christ wasn't just cheap talk, that he was serious about doing these things. Hey, Christian, talk is cheap. You come to church and talk the talk, leave here and walk the walk. Anybody can come and kneel at the altar and pray. Anybody can get down on their knees in their pew and pray. Get up off your knees, get up off your face, uh, get up out of your pew and leave here and practice exactly what it is that you say. Now, um, the mission of the Son of Man. Let me encourage you to write these uh, uh, three words down here. The mission of the Son of Man can be summed up in, in these words. Here they are. Welcome the outsiders. Welcome the outsiders. That is the mission of Jesus. Welcome the outsiders. Do you know what many American uh, Christian churches are guilty of today? They don't want to welcome outsiders. They want people to look like them, talk like them, act like them, smell like them, dress like them drive a car like them, live in a house like them, then yes, we'll welcome you into our church. As long as you don't, you know, ruffle too many feathers. That's not what Jesus was about. It's not what Jesus was about. I had someone say to me recently, why do you have a dress code at your church? I said, what? We don't have a dress code at our church. They said, well, unofficially you have a dress code at your church. And I said to that person, I said, we believe that we ought to put on our Sunday best for the Lord. If someone walks in the door and they're not dressed like we are, we do our best to love them. If there's a woman that walks in the door and she isn't dressed real modest and she doesn't know the drill, my wife is generally the first person to to approach her and and hug her and sit with her. Um, She's not here tonight to do that, but normally that... That's what she do. Um, we welcome the outsiders. 
Because that's what Jesus' ministry is about. We run buses into Bridgeport. We pick up boys and girls and teenagers and men and women. We bring them into our church and we welcome them and we love them. Number five, we see the manifesto of a new kingdom. The manifesto of a new kingdom. Let's jump right in here. Turn over to chapter 6, verse 12, and notice letter A, it's unusual leaders. Letter A, uh, it's unusual leaders. Chapter 6, verse 12. We see that Jesus is going to begin a new kingdom. And He's not going to go grab the, those who are labeled religious. He's going to get a different group of people. Look at verse 12, chapter 6. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. Now let me pause here. Let me piggyback off Sunday night's message. Do you notice that, now Jesus is God, he didn't need to do this, but he's giving us an example. Jesus is getting ready to set an important precedent. He's getting ready to pick the men he's going to train to carry the gospel into the world after he's gone. Notice what he does prior to this huge decision. He prays all night. He prays all night. You see that he bathed this decision in prayer before he made the decision. Don't go buy a house. Don't go take a job. Don't go buy a car. Don't go marry somebody. Don't even go get in a serious dating relationship until you have spent a lot of time in prayer. Jesus is teaching us the importance of Prayer, bathing things in prayer. I look back at verse 13. And when it was day, he, he called unto him his twelve, and of them he chose uh, twelve, uh, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter and Andrew, his uh, brother James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, J- James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotus, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which was also was the traitor. And he came down... With them and stood in the plain in the company of the disciples and a great multitude of the people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their disease. So it's unusual leaders. Jesus went out of his way to pick 12 people who uh, uh, didn't look like apostles, didn't look like preachers. But Jesus saw in them, while they were rough, Jesus saw in them that they were going to uh, uh, become something great. Now, he picked 12 disciples corresponding with the 12 tribes. 12 disciples, 12 tribes, he picked 12 disciples to correspond with that. Let her be noticed, it's upside-down philosophy. It's upside-down philosophy. Now, Jesus gives the same speech uh, on the plain, or rather a variation of that speech that he gave on the plain, uh, rather, on the mountain in Matthew 5, he gives it here on the plain. Now, while it looks the same or looks similar, some people will say, hey, why is the passage in Luke 6 different than the passage in Matthew 5? The answer is because this is a different sermon than, than Matthew 5. Um, I, uh, uh, two Sunday nights ago, I preached here um, prayer, asking, and receiving. I took the same notes. And I preached the same sermon in chapel at New England Baptist College in Southington. Can I tell you that while it sounded similar, it was two different sermons. I, I emphasized different things in Bible college chapel than I did in church service. Um, Jesus probably took the same concept from Matthew 5 where he preached on the mountain 
and he preached it again here, but it's going to be a little bit different because it was a different time. This has been labeled as the Sermon on the Plain, but nonetheless, here he's going to give an upside-down philosophy, that which does not fit or match the world, all right? What is the upside-down philosophy? If these aren't in your notes there, let me encourage you to jot these down. Well, the upside-down philosophy is that the poor are blessed. Look at verse 20, the poor are blessed. The Sermon on the Plain, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. He said he came to proclaim liberty to the captives and to uh, preach to the poor. Well, here he's saying that if you want to be in the kingdom of God, you must be poor. What's that mean? You're not going to get into heaven if you are full with pride. You must be empty of yourself first. So uh, the poor are blessed. What else did he say? Well, he said that the rich are condemned. The rich are condemned. Look at verse 24. But woe unto you that are rich. For ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall uh, hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for uh, uh, ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you, and all men shall speak well of you. Uh, ye, uh, so did the fathers to the false prophets. So he's, he's saying here that, look, if you're rich in, in fame and you're rich in food and you're rich in uh, uh, popularity and you're rich in uh, uh, money uh, uh, and you are relying on those things, you are condemned. You are condemned. It's an upside down philosophy. What's the world say? He who dies of the most toys wins. Jesus said here, he who dies of the most toys loses. Loses. Now again, I'm not saying it's anything wrong to have things, but your love and affection ought not be in things that ought to be in Jesus. What else does the upside down philosophy contain from this message? Well, love your enemies. Look at verse 27. But I say unto you, which hear, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, Offer also the other, and him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Let me ask a question this evening. Can, I would um, like you to, uh, to, work, to correspond, or, or rather respond here for me. How many of you find that passage difficult to follow? Would you raise your hand if you find that passage difficult to follow? Love your enemy. Love your enemies. Am I, am I the only one that's ever struggled with that? Can I tell you um, how the Lord has grown me in this area? I'm not here to toot my horn, I promise. I've got a lot of growing to do. Let me tell you how to love your enemy tonight. We are quick to be reactionary. Let me draw up a scenario here, okay? I'm going to pick on John and Carla. Can I pick on you guys for a moment here? Let's say that um, Carla has a bad day at work because uh, her boss... Um, is going through a hard time at home. And he comes to work and makes Carla's life miserable. And Carla goes home and makes John's life miserable. Because she had a bad day at work. John is miserable. Now, I'm, I'm using this because this would never happen. Carla's a sweetheart. Right, John? Yeah, that's right. Carla's never going to let me use them again. Um, John comes to church because 
uh, and he's nasty with me. Again, I'm making this up. He's nasty with me because Carl has been making his life miserable for days. Carl has been making his life miserable for days because her boss has been making her life miserable for days. And so you have this trickle-down effect. Now, somewhere this has got to stop. Because if John comes to church and makes me miserable, I'm going to go home and make my wife miserable. He's going to go on and make my children miserable. They're going to go on and treat your kids bad. They're going to have a big church fight. Okay? So what's the answer? When somebody mistreats you, don't take it personal. Don't take it personal. Now, young in my Christian life, in this scenario, John comes and he, he, uh, he lets me have it. All right? I'd step back and go, oh, I don't know what his problem is. Oh, how dare he treat me that way? Now there's this adversarial relationship going on. But as the Lord is being to grow me and show me, hey, listen, if John has a problem with me, or John rather had a bad day with me, I need to step back and analyze, did I do anything to John? If so, apologize for it. If not, step back and go, I'm going to reach around John's problem and love him. That's how you love your enemies. Someone mistreats you. You know what? Hurting people hurt people. So don't get hurt when a hurting person lashes out. Endure the hurt and step up and say, I'm going to love you through your hurt. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? We kept hurling up our sins at Him and He said, I'm going to absorb your sin in my body and I'm going to love my enemy. All we're called is to do the same. An upside down philosophy. Letter, or rather, one more here. Love the unlovely. Look down at verse 31. It says there, And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank ye? Boy, this is convicting. For sinners also love those that love them. Um, and if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye have hope to receive... What thank have you? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. Hey, look, anybody can love somebody that loves them. Go love somebody that isn't lovable. Um, you ought to respect people with a title. But you ought to respect people that don't have a title. You ought to love people that can love you back. You ought to love people who will never, ever give you anything back ever again. That's the upside down philosophy. You know what that is? That's, in, that's welcoming the outsiders into your life. That's the manifesto of, of, of a new kingdom. It's unusual leaders. It's upside-down philosophy. Number six, look at the march toward Jerusalem. The march toward Jerusalem. So, in this point, we're going to look at an A, B, and a C. And we're going to talk about how that Jesus now is leaving Galilee. And He's heading toward Jerusalem. He's going to take the long route. And uh, we learn a lot about Jesus in his travels. So, the march toward Jerusalem. And this is going to be a good chunk of the book of Luke. Luke chapter 9, uh, I believe into chapter 19, if my memory serves me correctly here. And so, let's look at several aspects about this trip. Notice letter A. Uh, notice commission of his disciples. Commission of his disciples. So Jesus here gathers together, he had the twelve that he trained uh, uh, very, very up close and personal, but there were more disciples abroad beyond the twelve that he would work with. Look at chapter 9 and verse 1. Notice here that we see that true discipleship, 
means ministry. I believe that's already on the back of your bulletin there. Ministry. Look at verse 1. And he called his twelve together, or disciples again, uh, together, and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And uh, so let's pause there. What is being a disciple? What is discipleship? It's ministry. You, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Okay, there's three steps to Christian life. What's the, what's the first step to be a Christian? Salvation. What's the second step? Baptism. You know that you can be saved and not be a disciple? You know you can be saved and baptized and not be a disciple? Let me make it personal. You can be a member of White Oak Baptist Church and not be a disciple of Jesus. Now, I'm going to give you some things tonight that you can do personal inventory over and you can ask yourself this question. Am I practicing these? Because if you're not, then you're either a very bad disciple or you're not a disciple at all. Discipleship. Do you know why we have Wednesday night church? It isn't just so we have another opportunity to pass the offering plate. We have Wednesday night church to disciple you. So that you can learn how you're supposed to live. Now, getting the information is great, but you've got to practice it. Jesus said to his disciples, go do the work. Go do the work. Listen, sitting on a pew at White Baptist Church and opening the Bible and understanding it, that helps you to be a disciple, but that is not being a disciple. That is not discipleship. Uh, having been a member here for a long time and having friends here does not qualify you as being a disciple. You're in the ballpark, you're in the right spot, but until you're willing to do the work, it doesn't count. You say, well, pastor, what kind of work? Well, what did Jesus do? Look back at verse number 1 in chapter 9. Then he called his twelve disciples uh, 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 together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. Now, God's not going to give us power to, to cast out demons and cure diseases, but he is giving us the power of the gospel to go share it. So it's ministry. What else is it? It's minimalism. Minimalism. Look at verse 2. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves, nor script, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. And whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide and thence depart. And whatsoever and, and whosoever will not receive you, when ye go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. What's he saying here? He's saying that if you're going to be a, a disciple of mine, you cannot be concerned with earthly things. You must be concerned with my calling on you. A lot of people say, Pastor, I'd work a bus route, but I'm too busy. Pastor, I teach a Sunday school class, I'm too busy. Pastor, I'd, uh, I'd be more involved in the church, but I'm too busy. Are you too busy to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Maybe we need to downsize our lifestyles so that we can better serve Him. Minimalism. He said to these disciples, don't worry about taking anything for your trip. Live by faith. I'll take care of you. Jesus taught them as they began to come back to Him. So, He sends out the disciples ahead of Him. They're going ahead of Him. So, He's walking toward Jerusalem. He sends them out ahead. And as they are, are doing their work, they're coming back to Him. And slowly they begin to arrive. And as they arrive a little at a time, He works on teaching them. Well, what does He teach them? As they're coming back to Him, He teaches them about prayer. Look at chapter 11 and verse number 1. Chapter 11 and verse number 1. And it came to pass that as... He was praying in a certain place when he ceased. 
One of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he saith unto them, when, excuse me, when you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. So he's giving them a model here of how to pray. And so he's teaching them about prayer. What else is he teaching them about? Well, he's teaching them about provisions. Look at chapter 12, verse number 28. And again, this is directly pointed at his disciples. Look at verse 28, chapter 12. If God then so clothe the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not uh, ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind, for all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things, what things? Your provisions shall be added unto you. So what's the message here? Jesus to his disciples, hey, listen, if you're going to be my disciple, don't worry about what you're going to wear, and what you're going to sleep and how you're going to get your needs taken care of. Serve me and I will make sure you get all those. Seek first the kingdom of God and you'll get that. Now look down at chapter, uh, turn over to chapter 18 and uh, verse number 18, chapter 18 and verse number 18. The Bible says in verse 18 there, And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. Uh, uh, thou, camest, uh, uh, thou camest the commandment, do not, thou knowest rather the commandment, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he saith unto him, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now, when Jesus heard these things, he saith unto him, Ye lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor. There that is again, that word poor. Thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful for he was very rich. You understanding here the point of the book? Jesus says, I came for the poor. If you want to be my disciple, then give away your things. And be poor like these folks, and then come help me reach the poor. And the man said, I can't. I'm too, I'm too busy being rich to worry about helping the poor. You can't love on the poor if you don't know what it's like to be poor. Now again, that doesn't necessarily mean poor financially. Here, that was that man's obstacle. That was that man's obstacle. What is Jesus teaching his disciples? He's teaching them that to truly be my disciple, you must be involved in ministry. You need to live a life of minimalism. You need to pray. You need to rely on God for your provisions. And you don't need to be weighed down by possessions. That is the commission of his disciples. Now look at letter B and notice the com compassion on the poor. The compassion on the poor. Another key theme in this section of the book where Jesus travels from Galilee to Jerusalem is his loving on the poor. Again, uh, here we see that he heals the blind, the sick, uh, uh, Samaritans, and uh, uh, another social outcast named Zacchaeus. Again, another tax collector. Je Jesus likens his new followers, pay attention here, as a heavenly, or his new followers as guests at a heavenly banquet. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. Look at uh, chapter 15 in verse number 1. Chapter 15 in verse number 1. Here we get a picture of Jesus showing compassion on society's outcasts. 
society's poor. The Bible says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. The Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Who is Jesus around? The publicans, the sinners, the outcasts, the poor. Now, some of these people had money. They were poor. They were poor. They were poor in, in relationships. The Bible tells us that Jesus made His company with these folks. Now, let me, uh, let me quickly make uh, one parallel here. While you and I, while you and I ought not hang out with sinners, you need to help sinners. I, I've heard people say, well, Jesus hung out with sinners. No, He didn't. No, he didn't. Jesus didn't hang out at all. Jesus had a purpose and reason everything he did. Hanging out is just wasting time. Jesus didn't waste time. Jesus was around publicans and sinners just because they were around him to get better. He wasn't hanging around them for them to pull him down. He was hanging around them, or he was around them because they were wanting him to pull them up. You need to put yourself in a spot where you can have someone who doesn't smell, who smells like sin, uh, where that doesn't bother you. Look, if someone comes in our church and they smell like cigarette smoke and you're like trying to scoot down the pew to get away from them, there's a problem with your heart. There's a problem with your heart. If you can't go visit Trumbull Gardens because, oh, uh, you know, I smell pot in the neighborhood. Listen, there's, there's sin in your heart. You've got to get where you can help the outsiders. You can welcome the outsiders and help them. We'll finish up the book of Luke next week. We'll look at uh, uh, the conclusion of the book here. and We'll talk about how that uh, Jesus wouldn't just banquet with the sinners. He would banquet with the others. We'll look at letter C and then points 7 and 8 next week. I hope tonight that you're challenged to ask yourself this question. Am I really a disciple or am I just a church member? It's time to take, it, take that step. Let's take that step. Lord, I ask tonight you'd help us as we consider these truths. Help us tonight, Lord, to know that it is important for us to not just have our name on a membership role, but, Lord, that we're actively looking to grow and become like you. May we not be consumed with nice houses and, and fancy clothes and nice gadgets and, and um, things. God, I think those things in some way are okay if they don't distract us from the main purpose of life. That's to welcome the outsiders. I pray, God, that you'd help us to pick that up, to seek and to save that which is lost, and lead them to salvation. May we embrace an upside-down philosophy. May we be those peculiar disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. The piano is playing. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I encourage you to come and gut check, Christian. Are you saved? You just you bet have you been baptized? That's great. How about being a disciple? Being a disciple of Christ. Are you willing to embrace the ministry? Are you willing to embrace a minimalistic lifestyle? Are you willing to embrace a life of prayer? You're willing to trust on Him for your needs and ask Him to not uh, allow yourself to be bogged down by possessions. Let's give ourselves over to being disciples and following the Son of Man and His mission.